Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. That's where we are this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would ask that you grab one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. And turn to page 941 in that blue Bible. That'll bring you to Romans chapter 3. We're looking at specifically verses 19 through 20. Maybe you've had this experience, but some of the hardest, most challenging people to reach with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ, with the message of salvation, are religious people. Religious people. People who think they are good with God already because they do their best to keep His law. They keep some of His commandments some of the time. But these type of people, just like the first century Jew, have really misunderstood the function, the purpose of the law. They've misunderstood it. Religious people who think that the law is actually their friend or that the law can help make them right with God. The law, beloved, actually puts us in a very bad position with God. A very bad position with God. Not a good one. And so I want to talk to you about that this morning. And just just to have you be thinking, it's not just people who are not saved, but are, quote, religious, who use the law in the wrong way. They use the law to defend themselves against God, which is a mistake. But Christians even can tend to start to go back to finding confidence in the law to make them right with God. Christians can do that too. And beloved, that is not the function of the law. It is not as we will see here as we look through the text. So, beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, just reading two verses this morning. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This morning, if you have a bulletin, you have an outline inside of that bulletin, and You'll find this note. We're going to simply consider three things, three things that the law does so that we might fully understand the foolishness of thinking that anyone could be justified in God's sight by their observance of the law, by observing His law, by attempting to whatever degree they can to keep God's divine law. And we're going to see how foolish that concept is. The law of God, these three things the law does, is the law of God makes everyone speechless before God, accountable to God, and fully aware of their sinfulness. Okay, that's where we're going. But before we look at that first point, I just need to address a few things concerning this text. Some Bible commentators, and again, you may not have ever heard this, and it may not even matter much to you, but I want to address it. Some Bible commentators believe that verse 19, the verse we just read, refers back to what Paul just wrote, or what he wrote in verses 10 through 18. We looked at that 
last week. And in 10 through 18, what you find is quotations from places in the Old Testament Scripture, specifically quotations from Isaiah and quotations from the book of Psalms, two books of the Old Testament. And he made those quotations, we talked about this last week, to make or prove his point that all people, every single person, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. They are under sin or under the enslaving power of sin and the condemnation that results from being under sin. They are under sin. So when Paul says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, when he says that, some Bible commentators think they understand it to be a reference back to the passages of Scripture that Paul just quoted from the Old Testament in Psalms and Isaiah. Okay? So he, they believe he's referencing back when he says, now the law, whatever the law says, and he's talking about what he just said, supposedly quoting from the law. But in order for the Bible commentators to do that, they must define the word law then as a reference to the Old Testament in general or as a reference to the entire Old Testament, okay? Which is, listen, which is different than the way Paul usually uses the word law. And these things, maybe you think, well, I don't care. I don't even care about this. You need to care about it. You need to know. You need to hear this because the word law comes up a lot in the book of Romans. It's a very important part of the book of Romans. So that's why I'm kind of discussing this with you now. Almost always, when Paul uses the word law, it is used to refer to the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law, or sometimes it's called the law of Moses. It's even referred to that, referred that to that, it's referred that way in the Gospels. And this Mosaic law is the written law of God. I've told you, I've said this before. It's the written law of God that was given to the nation of Israel by God through his servant Moses. And it has been preserved and passed down through the generations, through the books that Moses specifically wrote. Okay? Law of Moses, Mosaic law. Now, it is true that the Bible does occasionally use the word law to generally refer to the entire Old Testament. Okay? So we know that for sure because, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, or 14, verse 21, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses the word law as it is written in the law, and then he makes a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah. So we can see there, he's not referring back to the Mosaic law necessarily. He's not referring back to the books that Moses wrote. Moses didn't write Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah wrote Isaiah. And so he's just using the law as a, in a, as a general term to refer back to the Old Testament scriptures, which we're still primarily centered on and speaking about the law of God, God's divine law. But listen, that is an exception to the rule that the word law is normally used in the Scriptures, and especially by Paul, and especially in the book of Romans, to refer to the Mosaic or divine law of God. Now, while it is entirely possible that Paul is using, as some commentators believe, is using the word law to refer back to the Old Testament quotations that he just laid out in verses 10 through 18 from Isaiah in Psalms, it's possible 
I'm not convinced that's the case. Rather, I think Paul is using it like he usually uses it to refer to the Mosaic Law, God's divine law, which would include the Ten Commandments and many other laws. And he is really preparing the reader for what he intends to say in the next section of Romans, beginning in verse 21. So 19 and 20, in my opinion, are a lead-up to what's coming in 21 and following. It is not looking back. Verse 19 is not, in my opinion, looking back to the verses 10 through 18. And so let me kind of show you that to show you some context. I'm going to read 319 through roughly through 24. I'll stop at 24 just to show you uh, the context and what I think is going on here. Verse 19, again, now we know that whatever the law, okay, law, you're going to see it four times in these two verses in 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, again, I don't think this is a general description of the Old Testament. I think it's specific, Mosaic law. It speaks to those who are under the law, again, under the Mosaic law, under God's divine law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, okay, again, Mosaic law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then I think he's using it exactly the same way. Now we jump into verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or demonstrated, and we'll get there next week, apart from the law. And again, there's no doubt, there's no doubt that this is a reference to the Mosaic law here. So I think in context, it's the same. Throughout these passages, it's the same reference. It's the same meaning. God's divine law. It's not just a general reference to the Old Testament Scriptures. And then Paul goes on to say, although the law and the prophets, do you see that? The law and the prophets, and the ESV capitalizes the word law and prophets because it's kind of a title. It's It's a way that the writers would use to refer to the Old Testament Scriptures. So they would sometimes say the law, the prophets, and the writings because the Old Testament was broken up, if you will, into three segments. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay, And we could, I could assign each of the books to each section. But sometimes they would just give a short meaning, so they would just say the law and the prophets. There, he is making a reference to the Old Testament Scripture. So he's saying, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest, manifested apart from the law. And I want, I want to save that to next week to really get at that. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the Old Testament talks about it. And then he defines what that is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So I believe verses 19 through 20 again. They're not looking backward, especially nice verse 19. It's looking forward. It's preparatory for verses 21 and following, which we'll get into detail next week. And also that the word law is being used consistently the same way through these texts. It's not a general reference to the Old Testament, but specifically to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, the law of God. You with me? Okay. I hope that makes sense. So it's important also to the way I'm understanding the text and implying the text and interpreting the text. So here's the problem, I believe, based on all that, that Paul was dealing with. The Jews 
very clearly, plainly understood and believed based on God's divine law, based on that Mosaic law, based on his divine revelation of what is morally right and what is morally wrong, based on that, they all believed and they all agreed that the Gentiles were an unrighteous people. It was evident. They were unrighteous based on that law. They were guilty before God based on that law. And they were absolutely worthy of his condemnation. Remember what Gentiles are? They're non-Jewish people. So when the Bible breaks, again, I say it a lot, I know, but just to make sure everyone's on the same page, they're not missing it. You have the Jewish people, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, and you have the Gentiles, the rest of the nations. So the Jews knew, without a doubt, based on their knowledge, their supreme knowledge of what was truly right and what was truly wrong, that the Gentiles were a mess. But the problem is, is that many of the Jews didn't see that the very same law, God's law, also proved and demonstrated that they too were absolutely unrighteous. That they were clearly guilty before God and absolutely worthy of His condemnation just like the Gentiles. So many Jews, unfortunately, had an attitude of self-righteousness. Of self-righteousness. You know what that means? Some of you? It's that feeling of, that, that feeling of superiority concerning your morality. That you are, you are righteous, or certainly more righteous than others. And the Jews were plagued with that disease. By the way, so are many people today. So are some Christians, unfortunately. So going back to verse 19 now, I believe Paul is saying, listen, listen, this is what he's saying to them. We know that whatever the law says, the Mosaic law, the divine law of God, we know it says it to those who are under the law. Who are those under the law? Now, some of you said Jews, and you may just know that, or you know that because you've been with us as we move through the book of Romans. Paul used that, those very words, that same exact phrase, in Romans chapter 2, verse 12. And there it was clearly used to distinguish the Jews, those under the law, from the Gentiles, those who were without the law. Meaning, the written Mosaic law, because the law historically, was not directly given to them by God, the Gentiles, but rather it was given historically, directly, to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. So there is that way of distinguishing. You have those who are under the law. They've been given the law, held accountable to that law. And you have those who are without the law, meaning that they simply were not direct recipients of that law and living under that law. And so Paul is saying, Hey guys, this is what I believe, the law of God, that law that clearly shows and proves that the world, everyone else is guilty before God, that very same law, first and foremost, speaks to you, the Jew. And so it speaks so that every single mouth may be stopped. 
not just the Gentiles, but the Jews as well. Every single person. That's what I believe is going on. One writer says this. We must remember that Paul's chief purposes throughout Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 20, where we are at this point, is not to demonstrate that the Gentiles are guilty and in need of God's righteousness. That's really not the main emphasis, for this could be assumed. They all agreed on that already. There was no debate about that. No one would get upset about Paul saying that. But here's the issue, that the Jews bear the same burden and same need. It is for this reason that while all people, everyone, are included in the scope of what verses 19 and 20 are talking about, there is particular reference to the Jews and to their law. And as we've been moving through the text, if you've been here, I told you, Paul addressed the Gentiles in Romans 1.18, extending to the end of chapter 1, but beginning in chapter 2, he now begins to address the Jews. And his emphasis is, guys, listen, these are Jews who have not received Christ by faith. They have rejected Christ. They don't think they even need Christ. He's saying, listen, you need Him. You need Him just as much as the Gentiles do. We are all absolutely guilty before God and in need of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he's going to talk about beginning in chapter 3, verse 21. And so he's just driving home this point again and again because for the Jews it would be so hard for them to accept that they're on the same level as the Gentiles. Yes! Just as guilty, just as condemned, just as unrighteous. And let me remind you something, Jews. That very law that you use to condemn everyone else, it condemns you! And so that's what he's going to... He's going to make it clear. This is kind of his final shotting you know, point, his final point, his final emphasis before he gets into the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that every human being needs. So, ready? Now it gets good. Because remember, he's speaking primarily to the Jew, but it applies to every single person. The law of God makes everyone, everyone speechless before God. That's the first point. Speechless before God. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Look back now at the text. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. I just dealt with that. So that every mouth, both Jew and Gentile, may be stopped. May be stopped. The function of the law, Paul tells us in verse 19, is to speak so that every mouth may be stopped. Closed in the New American Standard Bible. That's their translation. Silenced in the New International Version. Stopped, closed, silenced. you get the idea? The idea is that when the law of God speaks, man is left with nothing to say. He's left with nothing to say. That is, he is left with nothing to say about how good he is. Or how righteous he is. Or how deserving he is of heaven Or how undeserving he is of hell. Because the righteous law of God leaves every sinner. Listen, it leaves every sinner who are sinners. Everyone without any defense before God. 
That's what the law of God does. The law levels all of humanity. It levels them. It's powerful when it's understood rightly. And it's intended to do this, beloved. So I don't care who you are. Rich, poor, educated, uneducated, good-looking, not good-looking, whatever, however we define ourselves, this race, that race, don't care. The law levels every single human being and leaves them in the same spot, on the floor, face down, mouth shut before God. That's what Paul is saying. Beloved, many wrongly believe this, but the law of God cannot function in any way as the sinner's Savior. Rather, it is intended to show every sinner their absolute need for a Savior. So that they might put all their hope and confidence in Him, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And yet, sadly, unfortunately, tragically, how many today just like the Jews in the first century, hear the law speak, but their mouths are not closed. Rather, they attempt to justify themselves before God. Well, I'm a good person, they say. Based on what? Based on comparing yourself, I said this last, based on comparing yourself to someone who's worse than you? Someone who's a greater sinner than you? That makes you a good person. Or is it based on measuring yourself against the holy and perfect and righteous law of God? Is that your standard when you say you're a good person? Because if it is, you're crazy. You don't understand the law. You've misunderstood it. You've misread it. One writer says, it is so much easier for us to be better than other people. But that is not the test, beloved. That's not the test. That's not the standard. The standard is not, I'm a good person because I do better at keeping the law than my neighbor. That is not the standard. The standard is perfection. The standard is perfect compliance and obedience. One writer says this, the Jews thought that they understood it all. And they boasted of their knowledge. What is he talking about? He talks about in Romans chapter 2, Paul does. They boasted in their knowledge of God's law. They thought they had this whole thing figured out. But Paul now points out to them that when you realize what the law is truly saying, to you, the result is that every mouth shall be stopped. You are rendered speechless. Now listen. He goes on to say this, and I thought this was really good. Hope you enjoy this. You are not a Christian unless you have been made speechless. How do you know whether you are a Christian or not? It is that you stop talking. Now listen. <laughs> Just listen. You know, we, what are we talking about? What's the context? You stop defending yourself. You stop saying what a good person you are. 
You let the law do what it's supposed to do. Shut your mouth before a holy God. That's what the Christian does. That's what they must do in order to rightly come crawling to Christ and pleading for His mercy. Not walking up and saying, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Not that bad anyway, but I'll take it. The trouble with the non-Christian is he goes on talking. He says, I do not see this. I do not see that. After all, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. He is still talking. Well, by the way, this is, this is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this guy who, this was known as uh, really one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. So this is not some whack, okay, who's saying this. This is a solid Christian man. He's gone home to be with the Lord now. But he's saying this stuff back in the 50s, I think, is when this would have been preached sometime around there. He goes on to say, You do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut, is stopped, and you are speechless and have nothing to say. You put up your arguments and you produce all your righteousness. Then the law speaks and it all withers to nothing. It becomes filthy rags. That's a reference to Isaiah 64, 6. Look it up. And dung. That's a reference to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. You'll find the word rubbish there in most translations now. Excrement. Animal excrement. That's what it is. That's what Paul says his righteousness was in light of the law. And then you have nothing to say. Huh? This text in Romans reminds me of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember it? This is so good, so I want to read it again. You probably are familiar with it. You probably heard it. But wow, does it illustrate what Paul's talking about here concerning the law of God. What it should do. And what it often doesn't accomplish because people misunderstand it. They don't hear it as they should. Listen, it's in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. I'll just read it to you through 14. This is Jesus telling this parable. It says, so he tells us why he's telling it, beginning in verse 9. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Who's that? The Jew, he has a Jewish audience, and there they are. These people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And thinking they were righteous in their self-righteousness, they treated others with contempt. They looked down on everyone else. Look at you unrighteous, unworthy, condemned sinners. Look at me. That's the idea. That's the audience. And here's the parable that Jesus tells them. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Hey, this is the religious elite here. A Pharisee. These are law keepers. And the other a tax collector. The lowest level in society for them. I don't have time to... I've talked about that before, but just think about the spies, okay? So here's two people. The Pharisee held up as, wow, the moral man, and here's the tax collector, basically a traitor to the Jewish people, collecting taxes from the people for, the, for Rome. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, <laughs> extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. Look at all that I do. I give tithes of all that I get. I am so awesome. I'm such a good little law keeper. I am so righteous. Man, God, you're lucky I even came in here today. 
That's not all there. Okay? I'm adding a lot of that stuff, but you get the idea. And listen, this is a man whose mouth has not been shut. This is a man who does not understand the function of the law. This is a man who actually thinks he can be made acceptable to God. Through the law. Through God's divine, holy, perfect law. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. He wouldn't even look up. But he beat his breast. It's, it's just a way of showing sorrow. Incredible sorrow. Saying, God, this is all he has to say, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's, all he, that's, that's what the law does when people hear it rightly. That's what they're left with. There's no other words except a plea, a cry for mercy before a holy God. And then Jesus, He tells us, He tells us what to think of this, right? He doesn't leave and we have to figure it out on our own. He says, I tell you, this man, He's talking about the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Who's He talking about? The Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself, they will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself, they'll be exalted. Beloved, rather than give us a reason to boast before God, the law of God is intended to utterly humble us before Him and make us see our desperate need for righteousness, our supreme need for the Savior, our absolute need. For God's mercy. That's the function of the law. People are confused. The law of God makes everyone speechless before God. The law of God makes everyone accountable to God. Look back at the text, Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world. The Greek word that's actually translated hold accountable or held accountable here in the ESV, it does not actually occur anywhere else in the Scriptures. But Paul used it here. And it's used in other Greek writings to mean answerable to, answerable to, or liable to prosecution. It's sometimes a legal term. Liable to prosecution. It's used in a legal setting in other Greek writings. Or it can just simply mean accountable in this sense, in a legal sort of way. The New King James Bible translates this part of verse 19 that we just read, translates it this way, which was the main Bible that we used for a long, long time, was the New King James. King James and then the New King James. It just says, in all the world, here's the function of law, that all the world may become guilty before God. Guilty before God. Okay, so I think it's all of that. It's guilty, it's answerable to, it's accountable to, it's liable to persecution. All of that is communicated in that word. The law makes everyone accountable, answerable to, liable to, or guilty before God. Listen, the one who is not only the judge, but is also, this is important, is also the one who has been 
wronged. That's the idea. He's not just judge, beloved. He is judge. But he is the one who has personally been offended when we break his law. Therefore, everyone is accountable, answerable to, liable to him. To him. Listen. One writer says, The image then is all of humanity, all of us standing before God, accountable to Him for willful and inexcusable violations of His will, awaiting the sentence of condemnation that their actions deserve. So now, I said this, and some of you are still looking at me like, you're really riled up about this. Why? Well, I want you to pause now, and I want you to think about what I've just said and think about what this really means for a moment. When people violate God's law, when they break it, it makes them answerable to God. To God, which I don't think people really think about. I don't think they do. So let me show you what I mean. If you lie to your spouse or to your employer or to your friend or to whoever, if you lie to them, okay? Have you sinned against them? Yes, you have sinned against them, certainly. But that is not the end of the issue. That is not the end of it. First and foremost, you have sinned against God. Do you understand that? A lie to your friend, a sin against your friend, is actually, according to the law, a sin against God. God, because it's His law that says, Thou shall not bear false witness. It is His law that you and I violate and break. It is Him, first and foremost, that we have offended when we sin, when we violate His divine law. It is Him. One writer says this, is the function of divine law to bring all the world under the judicial sentence of God. And from this judicial sentence, there can be no appeal. Every mouth is stopped. And then he says, it is not difficult to get man to admit that he has sinned. People will say that, right? They say it so casually. Yeah, you know, of course, I'm not perfect. I've sinned. Do you understand what you just said? The function of the law. You sin not just against man. You sinned against the law of God. The divine law. And the writer says to go on and say, it's not so easy to get them to admit that they deserve to be punished now for their deeds. But that is exactly what they deserve. I sin against my friend. You know, no biggie, right? I go over, make it right. Or I don't even do that. We just go on with life. But we're still friends. But that sin against them is, again, first and foremost, a sin against God. Now, how do I make it right with Him? I can't. I can't. Not on my own, I can't. I cannot make it right with Him. All I've done is put myself in a position of deserving God's holy wrath against my violation of His law. And it would be great if I could say it only happened once. Once. 
But how often do we violate His law? How many times in our lives? Some we're conscious of, some we're not. Heaping up condemnation after condemnation. I think, hey, I'm doing fine. My friends forgive me, I'm all good. You're not fine with God. You're answerable to Him. You have been made accountable to Him by His law. That's what Paul is saying. It makes people who violate it subject to His punishment because God is the one who has really been wronged. It is His will that has been violated. Do you remember David, King David? Do you remember him in Psalm 51.4? Do you remember that outrageous stuff he did? Taking this woman, another man's wife that was not his own, having an adulterous affair, getting her husband murdered. This is King David. Okay? So did he sin against Bathsheba? Did he sin against Uriah? Did he sin against the nation of Israel as their king? You bet he did. And you know what he says in Psalm 51.4? Against you and only you, Lord, have I sinned. Against you and only you, Lord. He knew what he did. He had violated God's holy law and he realized that made him not just answerable to Bathsheba or to the people of Israel, but more importantly and more frightening, it made him answerable directly to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? The people talk about sinning like it's no big deal. They don't understand the law. They don't understand the function of the law. That makes them liable to God's punishment directly. Pastor David, teaching pastor of Foothill Bible Church, he said this concerning this text. When we sin, we frequently hurt other people. This is just another way of saying the same thing. But that is not the ultimate source of sin's evil, beloved. It's not. All sin is first and foremost an offense against our Creator, and thus it is to Him that satisfaction for sin is due. And since God is an eternal being, you can think about this one, our sin is eternally offensive and thus requires an eternal punishment. People don't understand, why is hell so long? Because we have sinned against an eternal God, therefore the punishment is eternal. Wow. One more. One more. The law of God makes everyone speechless before God. The law of God makes everyone accountable to God. The law of God, beloved, makes everyone fully aware of their sinfulness. Look back at the text. Verse 20. Paul says, For by the works of the law, no human being, that's no one, no Jew, no Gentile, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's look at that phrase, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Let's look at that first. The NIV translates it this way, and I think it makes it a bit more clear. So I just want to show it to you. If you don't have an NIV, it translates it this way. No one will be declared righteous in his sight, that is God's sight, by observing the law. It's pretty clear. No one will be declared righteous or right with God, made acceptable to him, justified in his sight by their attempts of observing the law. No one. What Paul is refuting is the ridiculous idea that a person could gain a right standing with God, be justified in his sight, declared righteous in his sight by anything that a sinner does in obedience to the law of God. 
which Paul simply refers to here as the works of the law. That's what the phrase is referring to, the works of the law. Some obedience to the law of God. See, today, just like in Paul's day, many people are seriously confused and believe that their observance of God's law, okay, even though it isn't perfect and complete, is somehow enough (laughs) to make them acceptable to God. That's what they think. Why else would they appeal to the law? Hey, I'm not a bad person. I haven't killed anybody. I don't lie very frequently. I try to do my best and take care of my neighbor. Why would you appeal to the law unless you thought the law somehow justified you before God? But you got the wrong idea. That's not the function of the law. It can't do that. And if you want to appeal to the law, you better appeal to it by saying, I have perfectly kept every piece of it. Down to the last jot and tittle, I have followed that thing. I've never broken it. You got the wrong idea about the law. People boast in their obedience. That It's crazy. We boast in our obedience or our law keeping, but all such boasting, beloved, according to the Scriptures, is absolutely and fully and completely in vain. It's worthless boasting. For no man can live up to all that God has required, and yet that is exactly what it would require for one to be justified in his sight through the law, total and utter obedience. We are a messed up lot, man, just messed up. And Paul says it this way, Galatians 2.21, in case you ever you get confused, go here. Paul says, listen, he's, he's making some strong arguments in Galatians, dealing with these Judaizers who are trying to put people back under the law to be made right with God. I don't set aside the grace of God. I don't do that. I don't count it as vain. I don't count it as worthless. Because that's what you guys are doing. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, if that's true, if I could be made right with God, justified with God, made acceptable to God through my obedience to the law, through following the law, the Mosaic law, if I could do that, then you know what? Christ died needlessly. He wasted it. What a waste that was. That's what Paul is saying. Can you imagine? That's what people are really saying when they think they're made right with God through the keeping of the law then you can just tell Jesus he wasted his time. God's whole idea was a dumb idea in sending his son. We didn't need that. He gave us his law. That's enough. Because after all, we're good people. We'll just try harder to keep it. And somehow that will make us right with him. Love of the law was not given to make sinners right with God or acceptable to Him. It just wasn't. This is not its function. Rather, Paul says, get this, rather, he says, the law reveals just how sinful we are. (laughs) This is why we're so messed up. People are so messed up. Look back at the text, Romans 3.24. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Are you guys kidding me? Since through the law, hello, comes the knowledge of sin comes the knowledge of sin. What's that all about? Well, listen, Paul says this later. We'll get there in Romans 7. We're staying in the book, staying in the context, staying with the same writer. He says this in Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? That there's something wrong with the law? By no means. Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay? All right. So obviously it categorizes sin for us. It lets us know what is righteous and what is not righteous, right? But how does that still mess us up? I mean, if we're naturally good people, so so what? So I know what not to do, I just won't do it. Aha! Verse 8 of Romans 7. I can't wait till we get to chapter 7 because this is just a fun passage. But I want to read it to you. He goes on to say, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, he's talking about the commandment not to covet, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. This is insane, guys. This, we're going to talk more about this when we get there, but let me give you the concept quickly. Paul is saying that when sinners are exposed to the law, that holy, perfect law, that the effect is it reveals the rebellion that is in our hearts. It reveals it. The rebellion against God and His law. It brings it to the surface. So God's law says, don't covet. Oh. Now all of a sudden I find in me a desire for all kinds of covetousness. That's what Paul means. You know this to be true, right? We know this to be true even just as simple as something as a small child. Child's fine. Everything's fine. Child's functioning well. Then you give the child law. Do not touch those outlets. What must they do now for the rest of their lives? What must they do? They must. They must. Dad and mom have spoken. There is rebellion. Because that's what that is, beloved. That is rebellion to authority. On a much grander scale, God has spoken to us. But at our heart, core, deep, deep within us, is rebellion. And so all it does is it gives an opportunity for us to find out just how much rebellion lies within inside of our corrupt and depraved and messed up hearts. And God's law brings that out in a way that nothing else can. People are appealing to God's law. People think that God's law is going to make them good with God. That's not its function. See, beloved, through the law comes not a, listen, not a better awareness of our righteousness. See, if we were truly righteous, get this, if we were, and we really were good people, then the law would come and it would just give us another opportunity for obedience. Look at, wow. It says not covet. I don't don't ever covet. I'm so awesome. I can't, oh, lying is a sin too. I never lie. That's incredible. And I don't even desire to. Look how awesome I am. Give me another one, God. Give me another one. Cannot believe it. That's what people, that's how people, I mean, in a sense, that's what they're saying. And yet the opposite is true. We know, listen, Scripture tells us that, but we even know this by experience. We know it to be true. And if you don't think that's true, then you're in denial, man. You're just in denial. Martin Luther, the great reformer, and a man who spent a lot of time in Galatians and in the book of Romans, 
he wrote this concerning this text. The principal point of the law, the principal point, the main point, the main function of the law is to make men not better, but worse. That is to say, it showeth, that's how they spoke back then, they showeth unto them their sin, it shows them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof, they may be humbled, terrified. Bruised and broken. And by this means may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed seed. And the seed, beloved, is Christ. That's how Paul speaks of the seed in Galatians chapter 3. The seed is Christ, the promised seed, the promised Messiah. That's the purpose of the law, to drive us to Christ. Another writer says this, How startling it is to contemplate the fact, to think about the fact that the best revelation man has apart from Christ, he's referring to the law, the greatest revelation that we've ever received as human beings apart from Christ, it is that law, it is that divine holy law. That law is good. That law is holy. That's what Paul says. There's no problem with the law. The problem is with us. And the writer says... Isn't it startling to contemplate that the best revelation man has apart from Christ only deepens his awareness of failure? The law loudly proclaims his need for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me conclude with a couple more quotes. One writer says this, The whole object and purpose of the law, the whole point. See, this is what this is why people are so confused. They're appealing to the law to make them right with God, or that it makes them right with God, or it makes them acceptable to God. But the whole object and purpose of the law is to show man he can never save himself, never. He can't. It should shut his mouth. So that he stops trying to defend himself because he is indefensible. It should show him that he is answerable, accountable, liable to persecution from God for he has violated that very law and it is not man's law, but it is God's law that he has ultimately violated. He has offended him and therefore worthy of, deserving of God's condemnation. He should be terrified. He should be on the floor pleading with God. Not... Boasting before Him. And finally He goes to the law. He thinks He finds righteousness of Himself in it. What He finds in it is all the rebellion kind of boiling up within Him every time He's exposed to it. That's the purpose of the law. So one writer says this, Is there hope? Is there hope then? And that's where Paul... That's where Paul wants the reader to be right now. Paul, at the end of here, verse 20, he wants the reader to be asking the question, then is there any hope? If that's the case, Paul, is there any hope? He wants the Jew to ask that question, who thinks his hope has been in the law. He wants the Jew to say, then there's no hope, Paul. That's what he wants him to say. 
Because in the verses that follow, we'll be introduced to the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of man. There is none. The righteousness of God. A righteousness, beloved, that has nothing to do with our performance. Nothing. But everything to do with God's provision. What God has provided for sinners in Christ. You see that? Because that's where we're going to be next week. That's where we're going. That's what Paul is about to unfold. But he had them to, he wants them to be at that point where their mouths are shut. When a person realizes, beloved, that the law's function, listen, is to make them speechless before God, to leave them without a defense before God, to make them accountable to Him, guilty before Him, and worthy of His punishment. And that it reveals just how unrighteous they really are. When a person realizes that, then they are truly ready for the great but now of verse 21. That's the contrast. But now, Paul says, I'm going to tell you something so incredible, something so great, as Paul begins to describe how God That holy God has intervened through Christ and His cross for our salvation. And to provide us with the righteousness that we really need. That we need, but we cannot obtain on our own. And certainly not through the law. That is not its purpose. And it is this righteousness of God that we need. That is the very righteousness, beloved, that makes us acceptable to Him. That makes us acceptable to Him. That makes us justified in His sight. It is the righteousness that we will find out comes only by or through faith. And not by works of the law. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. I I thank You so much for it, Father. And I pray that You will accomplish Your purposes through it in all of our hearts. Father, I would imagine there may be some here, and if not here, certainly some that we know, that we have contact with, who still are appealing to or trusting in their performance, their obedience to Your commands, to Your moral law, thinking somehow, just like the first century's Jews did, thinking wrongly, Father, that somehow that will make them right with you. Oh, that is so far from the truth. If only that they would see that the law was given by you to shut our mouths, to make us speechless before you, to look at it and realize there is no hope for me then. I cannot make myself right with you, God. I cannot possibly live in compliance with all of this. Because what I find within me is rebellion and sin. A desire to do the very thing you've said not to do or not to do. The very thing you've asked me to do. I am ruined. That is the function of the law, Father, as we see through your word, even through our own experience. It is to show how ruined we are. And it is to make us directly accountable to you. So that we don't go appeal to someone else. We must appeal directly to you. We must come to You. We must plead to You for mercy. And Father, this is what's amazing. You didn't wait for that. You took the initiative. 
You knew we were ruined, helpless, condemned, and you in your great love, a love we can't even comprehend, chose to send your son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for every single sin we've ever committed. And not only that, Father, but you take his righteous life, his righteousness, and you credit it to the sinner's account who has placed their faith in him and that alone. Nothing else. Thereby making that sinner completely and fully acceptable to you, God. Justified with you, right in your eyes. Because they have now been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And have been forgiven of every infraction against your law. Every sin. Everyone. Father, I pray that You would convict those who have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ that they need to do so right now. Right now. Because if they haven't, they are fully answerable to You for every single one of their sins because they have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ as being their sin bearer. And Father, that is a terrifying position to be in. And may they feel the full weight of that. Father, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we're trusting in Him and Him alone to make us right with You, Father. And it's not something we did yesterday or a year ago. We're doing it every day. Father, I pray that that is what we continue to do. We continue to put our hope and our trust in in Him, in the Righteous One, and not for a minute start to sink that we are somehow now justified with You by the works of the law, by our ability to observe the law. Wow, look at us, God. We really are not that bad. And forget that the only way we can even do anything that's worthy of Your praise is really when we let the Spirit, Your Spirit, work through us and His fruits are manifested in our lives. Father, we have no grounds for boasting. We have no reason for any self-righteousness. Father, it would be foolish of us to ever think we could be justified in Your sight by some observance of the law. We are justified. We are made right always and forever because of our faith and our faith alone in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our righteous King. Father, may that reality and that truth plunge deep into our hearts and our minds and impact the way we interact with one another and we interact with this world. In Jesus' name, amen.